Meet Reed Lance Rosenthal, rancher, number one best-selling, award-winning author, and unabashedly, unapologetically on the right side of the outstanding issues of our generation. But don't try to fence him in. Sometimes his positions will surprise you because Reed is definitely his own man with his own opinions. You might love him, you might hate him, but you won't be able to stop listening. Step over to the right side with Reed. Howdy listeners from coast to coast, the Gulf to Canada and around the globe. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. You know, the spigot, the hose, the gusher of news just is unabating, as you will see during this show. We are going to cover, and you'll see why, folks, you'll see why, because the puzzles are coming together on exactly who finances, who masterminds, and who is involved in these various election frauds around the country, particularly Arizona. I'm going to give you the history, a brief history, of the cartels in Mexico and where their reach extends now. And then I'm going to tell you the rest of the story, which will make you gasp. Now, I flat guarantee it. A lot of little dots are going to click into place. And then we're going to have, oh, several different things that we're going to cover. And then we're going to have a huge, another huge, rat-a-tat-tat. And I probably won't cover it all on this one either. But we have a lot to cover. So off we go. Let's start off with our founder's quote. In this case, John Adams. And you know, once again, apropos for this show, let me give you his thoughts there 240 years ago about this republic. Quote, but a constitution of government once changed from freedom can never be restored. Liberty, once lost, is lost forever, unquote. And then the rant story. Now, you know, I promise you kind of the second installment of this scene I saw play out dramatically from, from the kitchen window of the ranch house about 500 yards out during a snowstorm last week. And it involved a big mountain lion, a big cougar, and two big gray coyotes running for their lives, and a band of horses that were standing shoulder to shoulder before the snowy mist obscured the scene. And you know, I was kind of pressed. I was going to don my stuff, grab my, uh, we'll call them tools, and head out there and see what was going on, and I didn't. I decided to kind of wait and see where things went when I could see. And I went back out there, oh, a few days ago, and I followed the tracks of everything, because tracks tell a story. They really do. Almost like the words on a written page are the tracks in snow and barren ground. And what I found was the cat had gone up this little side canyon I described last week. The coyotes must have been bedded up in there. And when they saw this cat, probably twice, three times the size of either one of the coyotes, coming up the draw, (laughs) and he was moving with some purpose, I will tell you, when I saw him. They went, ah, not a good place to be. And they skedaddled. That's when I saw them scooting down through the field, full tilt in the opposite direction. The horses that had been grazing up on this ridge below the canyon, I saw them kind of bunch up, shoulder to shoulder, staring right down where the cat would have been he was now out of sight and i followed all these tracks well the cat went up there and after spooking out the coyotes which i think is probably what alerted the horses he just kind of lay down there in the snow probably swishing his tail and thinking to himself exactly how he was going to get this done or if he wanted to get it done the horses in the meantime are staring him down shoulder to shoulder seven big horses all 15 to 17 hands and in the end The cat got up from his snowy bed 
and thought better of whatever his original plan had to be and retreated back down the canyon and across the field. And the horses scattered out again and began grazing. Whatever became of the coyotes, I have no idea. They might still be running. They might be headed to Nebraska still. I don't know. But the moral of this story is, and it bore out the moral of the story last week, which was don't quite make a judgment, don't quite make a move until you can thread that line from dot to dot and have at least as clear a picture as you can. That was borne out by the story that these tracks told. Because in the end, all would have been for naught. In fact, my intrusion on the scene in my clumsy human way, which unfortunately is just the way we are, could have excited, could have precipitated, could have who knows what to what otherwise ended in a rather idyllic peace with everybody going their own way. All right, let's talk about the Mexican drug cartels. Let me start, number one, with just an overview of how these folks got started. What precipitated the comings of the cartels? And you know, it was the policies of the United States in a lot of ways. Everything we do, it seems, has unintended consequences, and I guess in some cases intended consequences. But back in 1930, the use of pot, cannabis, and other drugs was coming under the increasing scrutiny after the formation of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. It was called the FBN. In 1937, the United States passed the Marijuana Tax Act, and on the surface, it was just kind of a nominal tax on any possession or transaction of marijuana. In fact, the act hid below the tax a really stiff, draconian enforcement provisions and was combined with stringent legal requirements. And you had to get a tax stamp. And if you didn't, you would be a criminal. And I can go on and on. I won't bore you with the details. And of course, this started a booming black market in drugs of all types, including pot. And let's flash forward to the 1980s. And the first major cartel in Mexico, I mean, when they really started to get organized, this black market, which had been precipitated by the United States and Mexico, a guy by the name of Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. He was named the Godfather, and he became the country's first liaison with the Colombian cocaine traffickers, including a guy by the name, and you've heard this name, Pablo Escobar of the infamous Medellin cartel. Shortly thereafter, there was a murder of a U.S. drug enforcement agent, Enrique Camarena, in 1985, and that caused Gallardo in Mexico to get together kind of all the kingpins of Mexico's largest drug traffickers. And this was really the birth of the Sinola Federation and the Tijuana Cartel. And there's been many lesser cartels. I mean, the drug lords have come and gone. New groups have risen to power. They've killed each other. They've been killed by the various governments. Loyalties fade. Political protection changes with the changing of governments. Killings, arrests, and vacuums in leadership have made it kind of a dynamic But the Tijuana group and the Sonola group have survived and become ever, ever more powerful. The Sonola cartel was headed by a guy by the name of El Chapo. You've heard the name. His name was Guzman, El Chapo, or Shorty. He was once ranked, by the way, as one of the world's richest men, well over a billion dollars in net worth. And the Sonola cartel became the biggest supplier of illegal drugs to the United States of America while he was the head honcho. He was arrested in 2014. He's now serving a life sentence in prison here in the United States. When he was arrested, there was a power vacuum. 
and it began the spike of violence that we now know the border to be, as other groups sought to take advantage of what they perceived to be kind of a, a hole in the flow of funds from illegal activities. But the Sonola cartel remains supreme. It dominates northwest Mexico, the United States border, and has a presence in cities that range all the way from Buenos Aires, down there in Argentina, up to New York. It's estimated that its take last year was somewhere between 35 and $45 billion in profits from human trafficking, human smuggling, and of course, their foundation, drug smuggling. And that includes illicit narcotics to the United States, Europe, and Asia, and, and acting as kind of the dispensing agent for fentanyl that's coming from China. Oh, there's our good friends Red China again. They have their finger in every little anti-American pie they possibly can, do they not? When El Chapo was locked up, his son, Ovidio, kind of took over the reins. He was arrested. This is a really interesting story. It tells you the power of these cartels. When he was arrested by Mexican security forces in October of 2019, the Sonola cartel literally sent an army after him. I'm talking about armored pickups and jeeps with 50 caliber machine guns. I mean, a full-fledged army. And they took on battalions of Mexican army troops in broad daylight in the city and even staged a prison break to uh, free their jailed leader. The Tijuana cartel of old back there in the 80s and 90s morphed because it split into several groups, one of them called the Jalisco New Generation or CJNG. They are the main competition to the Sonola cartel now. It is second in organized crime control, murders, rapes, trafficking, drugs, only to the Sonola group. By the way, this cartel is and was led by a guy by the name of Ruben Asaguera. He's known as El Mencho. He happens to be a former police officer in Mexico who's Mexico's most wanted man. In addition, this just secondary cartel has tremendous contacts with China and distribute, in fact, more fentanyl to the United States than even the Sonola cartel. And as ruthless as the Sonola crew is, and they are ruthless, as we're going to see here in just a moment, the CJNG group, they're really rocking and rolling. They've taken down army helicopters with rocket-propelled grenades, killed dozens of state officials, over 100 journalists, and hang the bodies of their victims from bridges to intimidate rivals and local people who might not want to play ball with them, so to speak. There's other lesser cartels, still very powerful in their own right and just as vicious. The Gulf Cartel, which was built out of military that defected from Mexican special forces to the cartel ranks. The Los Zetas Cartel, and they're primarily in the Northeast They also have as their backbone, their enforcers, former Mexican military that they recruited, a nice name for bribed, out of the Mexican military. Very quickly, let's just step back in time and see how these cartels have grown and grown in power, grown and grown in wealth to the tens of billions of dollars, and how effective their control is of Mexico, other countries throughout Central and South America, and unfortunately, as you're going to learn in the rest of the story, certain states in these United States of America. In October of 1970, Congress passed the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. This kind of consolidated all the previous drug laws. In 71, Richard Nixon, then president, called drug abuse, quote, public enemy number one, unquote, and he coined the term, quote, war on drugs, unquote. The Nixon government actually spent 50 plus billion a year 
on the war on drugs, a large majority of it going towards treatment rather than law enforcement. In 1972, the Office of Drug Abuse Law Enforcement is founded. In 1972, the French Connection, remember that movie? A heroin smuggling ring between France and the U.S. is broken up. In 1973, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, is established. In 1975, the successor to Nixon, Gerald Ford, releases the White Paper on Drug Abuse, which begins, by the way, to relegate marijuana to, I quote, a low-priority drug level and to shift focus to heroin, amphetamines, and mixed barbiturates. Down in Colombia in 1975, Colombian police, financed by the United States, seized 600 kilos of cocaine, that's a lot of cocaine, folks, from a small plane at the Cali airport. The Medellin cartel down there in Colombia went on a rampage. In fact, one day, in one weekend, they killed 40 people in the town of Medellin. And the United States starts Operation Condor, Weapons, manpower, CIA and FBI resources, resources at the national embassies, and their goal was to capture, kill, and disappear opponents of capitalism in Uruguay, Peru, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, Bolivia, Paraguay, Colombia, and Venezuela. And Ronald Reagan continued that. It's estimated that more than 60,000 people died in the conflicts that were generated in various countries by Operation Condor. In 1978, Congress amended the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act. And then, from that point on, it allowed law enforcement to seize all money or, quote, other things of value furnished or intended to be furnished by any person in exchange for a controlled substance and all proceeds traceable to such exchange, unquote. And in 1979, the violence, the in-your-face violence, I'm sure there was violence before this, spilled across the U.S. border, and there was a fatal drug-related shootout between the cartels in broad daylight in Miami. By the way, a store clerk and a stock boy were shot in the process. The U.S. was also shutting down kind of the remote islands out there with little airfields that Colombia was using to transport its illicit drugs into the country, bypassing the Mexican cartels. And as they began to shut that down successfully throughout the Caribbean, Pablo Escobar, the Colombian drug traffic lord, and the Panamanian president, Manuel Noriega. It's amazing how politics and people in power and these cartels are interconnected. Oh, you have no idea. You wait and see. And Noriega, with this alliance with Pablo Escobar, starts to allow cocaine transport through Panama. In 1982, in response to that, the South Florida Drug Task Force is formed. And by the way, in March of 82, Pablo Escobar was elected He was elected to the Colombian Congress. And it was in 1982, after 3,906 pounds of cocaine, valued at over 100 million in 1982 dollars, folks, was seized at Miami International Airport, that U.S. law enforcement began to realize the scope and the organization of what they faced. And that's when the word cartel first began to be used. Let's talk about your family's safety. If you listen to this show, you know our aging power grid is more vulnerable than ever. There's been 70 physical attacks on grid stations and countless cyber attacks in the last year. Imagine a blackout lasting days, weeks, months. Look around your house. Water, refrigeration, heat, light would be poof. That's why having your own portable solar power and not relying on a government grid is critical. With a Patriot Power Sidekick from 4Patriots, you get a solar generator that's quick, easy, portable, 
on the go, or even inside. And though only the size of a lunchbox, it's powerful. It'll power your phones, your medical devices, even a mini fridge. A free solar panel, free shipping, and a practically unheard of 365-day satisfaction guarantee. You can get 10% off your purchase using the code RIGHTSIDE at checkout. FourPatriots.com. Use the code RIGHTSIDE. Get 10% off. FourPatriots.com. Protect you. Protect your family. Also in 1982, paving the way for the current instability that Mexico and our border states and our border is facing, Mexico renegotiated all its external debt with the International Monetary Fund. Oh, you know, the globalists. And the deal was Mexico was required to take all public industry and privatize it, remove all subsidies, shrink and eliminate import taxes, increase foreign investment, and freeze salaries, cut public spending, and devalue the Mexican peso. Because when you think about it, this impoverished many Mexicans. Their currency was devalued, their wages were frozen, and guess what? Into that vacuum stepped the cartels with offers of money and wealth and power, and they began to grow exponentially. It got to the point throughout the rest of the 80s that there was no government institution, no government official, no army in Central or South America or Mexico which was safe from the increasing power and firepower of the cartels. Judges were assassinated, including Supreme Court judges, high-ranking government officials, military leaders, police, police leaders, journalists, and of course, many innocents. It got so bad that when higher-ranking members of the cartels, like the Medellin cartel in Colombia, got arrested, within 24 hours, the editors of major papers would be delivered a letter with a list of all the government officials that were going to be killed unless the captured cartel member was released. And by the way, they were almost always released. In 1988, the cartels got their first taste of controlling voters, controlling elections, to keep friendly people in power, if you know what I mean. That election was between the ruling party, Carlos Salinas de Gotari, and a left-wing candidate, a guy by the name of Cardenas. On the eve of the election, two of his key campaign aides are found shot to death in Mexico City. And by the way, their job has been specifically to ensure that the elections would be clean and fair. And it's still widely believed to this day that this first real foray into election fraud and election manipulation by the cartels, that Cardenas actually won the election, and that it was only vote fraud by the the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI, that allowed for a Salinas victory. And interesting, think about this, folks. This is 30, almost 40 years ago. During the vote count, the government claimed that the computers crashed, characterizing as a, quote, breakdown of the system, unquote. And when they finally got everything working, you know, Salinas won with 50.7% of the votes, which was the lowest winning majority since direct elections were introduced in 1917. And later, years later, former President Miguel de la Madrid admitted to the New York Times and in an autobiography that he wrote that those presidential elections had been rigged to make sure that the PRI was the victor. And three years after election, Jesus, does this sound familiar? All the ballots were burnt in order to remove all the evidence of the fraud. In 1988, the severe economic stress of the lower middle class and lower class in Mexico is like ratcheted. Mexico starts the second phase of its economic state reform mandated by the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, driven by the United States, of course. 
Banks are privatized, and the campesinos, as they were called, lose the right to claim lands or keep communal land. So this directly affected small producers, and it spurred growth in the black market, or what's called the informal sector. And it drove 60% of the Mexican economy underground, which, of course, was delightful for the cartels. And things are still bubbling down in Panama, you know, between the Colombian cartels and Noriega, who by then has been indicted in the U.S., do you remember the whole Contra controversy, the Contra scandal during Reagan's years? In 1989, the U.S. invades Panama. The stated mission, and it was called Operation Just Cause, was to capture Noriega. Jesus, have shades of Iraq, anyone? And in 1993, the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, was enacted. However, with all the things that had occurred before, all these small landowners who had managed to hang on basically put them out of business. They couldn't compete with the big guys. And they had to turn to the burgeoning market for marijuana and poppies. It was really their only viable alternative to bankruptcy and losing their land. In 1998, which you'll see in the rest of the story, has interesting shadows of today. Operation Casablanca was the largest money laundering probe in United States history, and it led to the indictment of three Mexican and four Venezuelan banks and 167 arrests. Basically, it tracked the flow of money, the laundering of money, and the use of that money as bribes. Beginning in about 2000, all the way through 2006, first Colombia, with the aid of 60 attack helicopters given by the United States, and then Mexico militarized their war against the cartels. Operation Mococan and the Merida Initiative, a.k.a. Plan Mexico, in which the U.S. was either overtly or covertly involved, depending upon the operation, became huge operations to root out and kill high-ranking members of the cartel and disrupt cartel operations. And initially, in 2008 and 2009, there were many successes. Many high mucky mucks in the cartels were eliminated. Cartel ranks were decimated. Their power was not broken, but thwarted, reduced. And also in 2009, in the typical PSYOPs operation, Eric Holder did his famous Fast and Furious deal, releasing thousands of weapons into Mexico, supposedly to be able to trace them back to cartel members, except none of the serial numbers were ever recorded. Imagine that. And like a clockwork orange, the New York Times runs an article talking about how thousands of guns, the majority of guns being used by these cartels, come from the United States. Can we talk about gun control, anybody? But in 2009 and 2010, the cartels start to hit back hard. Thousands thousands of people are killed, including many many innocent people. They are still finding mass graves of 100 to 300 people all around the Mexican countryside. It's estimated that well over 100,000 and perhaps well over 200,000 people have been killed by the cartels since that 2009-2010 time period. And it include random acts of terror, storming birthday parties and killing teenagers that had no criminal ties. The killing, torturing, and sexual enslavement of more than 700 women. The wanton killing of immigrants bound for the U.S. border. And it was during this time that the burgeoning business, the really lucrative business of human smuggling and human trafficking took off in the cartel ranks. And the cartels played it both ways, and they fine-tuned it. Not only to get to the United States did you have to pay one of the cartels safe passage, and a quote-unquote guide fee, if you will. But then you were beholden to them. And it was not just enough to pay off your debt, whatever it was, but for a certain amount of time, you were really their indentured servant. You had to do in the United States whatever they told you, deliver drugs, run interference, and in certain cases, commit murders or acts of violence. Otherwise, 
you were toast. And all through this time period, the cartel was ever flexing its larger and larger musculature in terms of deciding the outcomes of elections, either by murder, by terror, by coercion, by extortion, by bribery, or by good old-fashioned electioneering and election fraud, or a combination of all of them. And nobody was above a bribe. I mean, the higher the official, the bigger the bribe. In fact, on February 21st, 2023, Mexico's ex-public security chief was convicted in the United States on a drug case. This was a guy in the presidential cabinet in Mexico. His name was, by the way, Gennaro Garcia Luna. At the same time, there were political changes in Mexico. The current Mexican president believed in stepping back from the military confronting the cartels. And that was driven by a number of peace movements, including by parents whose very innocent children had been killed in wanton cartel raids and acts of terror. And of course, as the government stepped back, the cartels stepped up. Just as on the U.S. border, as cadaver and crew have stepped back, the cartels have stepped up. And that brings me to the rest of this story. And the rest of this sorry story is the cartels have infiltrated every single state, particularly the border states, and particularly Arizona, and just slightly behind it, Nevada. They've infiltrated every major city, some more than others, particularly in blue states. And the cartels are not only involved in ever-increasing amounts of human trafficking, human smuggling, drugs, and other types of activities, now to the tune of, they estimate, 40 billion plus, just in the Sonola cartel. But they have learned in Mexico, and they have brought to the United States how to influence elections, how to buy public officials, how to get public officials that they've bought into office, manipulating American and state election laws, machines, paper ballots, folks, paper ballots, hand count, machines, And even the judges, unfortunately, who rule on challenges to fraudulent elections. There are two videos that the producers have put up on the website. One is about 42 minutes. One is slightly under two hours. They're long. I really, really, really suggest you watch them both, even if it's over a period of time. It will explain to you, and I'm going to synopsize them, how the cartels, using their enormous wealth, their enormous power, their, shall we say, violent, coercive power, have bribed and bought state officials and even the companies who install and maintain and are in charge of tabulating votes through the machines in plus or minus 20 states, perhaps more. The worst of these examples is Arizona. The 42-minute video is testimony just several days ago given to the Election Integrity Committee's Joint House and Senate of Arizona Committees by the chief researcher of the Thaler Law Firm. John Thaler is an attorney known for his forensic abilities. He's worked for governments. He's worked for large companies, Prudential, you know, Omaha. I mean, you name it. And his specialty is research. His specialty is uncovering a crime. And what they have uncovered will boggle your mind. We will just apply it to Arizona, although it began quite remarkably in Illinois, well, I guess that's not so that's not so remarkable given Chicago. In Indiana and Iowa, basically the cartels are laundering money through a variety of nefarious circumstances. Employment fraud, bankruptcy fraud, insurance fraud, and yes, single family home purchase and sale. And they take money from the drugs. They create fake mortgage corporations. They create fake deeds. They create 
fake buyers or sellers, depending upon which side of the transaction their intended bribery target is going to be on in a single-family transaction. And the money from these fake mortgages, and in some cases fake buyers or fake sellers or fake notaries, all of which they have proven through research of 120,000 public records documents and expert handwriting analysis. Those monies are going to state officials, police, judges, judges' clerks. They have an entire list, and it is a long list, of officials in Arizona who have been bought and paid for by the cartels and who they want to keep in power, just like in our history story of how they maintained the people they wanted in power in Mexico. They have transferred the entire operation to the United States. This includes, by the way, buying and selling the companies that maintain the machines and tabulate the machines, including the company Rundak, who is in charge of all that and the printing of absentee ballots in Maricopa County. By the way, Katie Hobbs is on the list of recipients of bribes through the sale of and the purchase of single-family homes with fake deeds, fake buyers, forged signatures, forged notaries, and non-existent mortgage companies, which manufactured money that apparently went to she and her husband. And it just so happens that the judges, at least some of them, who have ruled on the challenges to the elections down there for Secretary of State, for Attorney General, remember that was a 280-vote margin after weeks of delay, and there's still votes that haven't been counted, and none of the votes tabulate. In other words, none of the votes match vote counts. Carrie Lake will be in front of the Arizona Supreme Court. She has filed her brief. That brief is available on the website under election fraud you should read it. The number of votes that went to the quote-unquote independent third party that maintained the machines and was in charge of producing ballots, etc. Remember, remember my previous shows to the Democrats and I guess the cartels, which I guess are one and the same. It's all about ballots, folks, not votes. And it just so happens that there was a number of votes that went to the company, Rundak, who, by the way, is related is related to the Speaker of the House in Arizona. And the number of votes and ballots that came out of that company after the quote-unquote tabulation was 35,000 and change more votes, more ballots, than went in. Hmm, how does that happen? Well, I guess that happens when you're bought and paid for by cartel money. And when the Secretary of State, who's supervising her own election as governor, is bought and paid for by cartel money. I strongly suggest, no matter what state you're in, you watch these videos, and you get on your state legislatures, and you take whatever steps are necessary to shut this down if it's happening in your state, and it probably is, or to make sure it isn't happening in your state if it hasn't gotten a foothold yet. This also kind of explains Biden's open border policies. I'd I'd love to track the flow of that cash. And by the way, these practices apparently were prevalent in the 2020 election, too, in Arizona and other swing states. Imagine that. I guess it's another one of those conspiracy theories that are suddenly, shall we say, blossoming in the flower of truth. Just like the sudden admission by the government that, oh yeah, that COVID deal, yeah, that did come from the Wuhan lab. I mean, (laughs) you know, you can't make this stuff up. Director Ray from the FBI, the same FBI that was telling Twitter and the other social media companies to take down any posts which said that the COVID virus came from the Wuhan lab and not from, you know, a pangolin dancing with a duck. He testified before Congress the other day that, oh, the FBI has known about this for some time. 
that it came from the lab. Oh, okay. Take a look at those videos on the website, folks. They're under election fraud. They are under corruption, treason, rat-a-tat-tat, and under the audio bar. That's how important they are. They are all over that site. And pass them on because mainstream media sure as hell isn't going to. Also, on the election fraud thing, as I promised, you go to the Take Action page. There is a really, really good, really detailed outline on how to get involved in these elections. Remember, level two, get actively involved. How to get involved in these elections and shut this fraud down and get back to one vote from one legal voter, counted once. Now let's get into rat-a-tat-tat. Let's start off with international stuff. I'm going to admonish you again. I have brought you what the WEF and the globalists have planned for you. You know what this government is trying to do to you. I mean, that's kind of in your face every day, and I try and bring you the nits and gnats that nobody else does. You know what the economy is doing. It's all smoke and mirrors, these numbers they're feeding you. The real numbers, shadowstatistics.com. They play with the employment numbers. I told you about that. It wasn't 500,000 jobs gained in January. If you take out the seasonal BS adjustments, you lost 2 million jobs in January. Inflation isn't going down, it's going up. The PCE indicators came out last week. They are up year to year. They're up one-tenth of 1% from the previous month. This is one of the key indicators the Fed looks at. The Fed's going to keep raising rates. Car repos are up dramatically, 30%. Home and real estate values are falling. Transactions in some markets are down 80%. I mean, it's in your face, folks. And then you have the international, the geopolitical instabilities. And given all these things, you need to be prepared. And internationally, let's go over this real quick. This is just in the last few days, okay? Multiple regions in Russia were subject to drone attacks, including on an oil depot and a barracks. This is deep within Russia. The Russians closed down airspace all around St. Petersburg for drills and defense. China is laughing at Blinken warning them not to aid Russia. Yeah, right. I'd just shake my boots if he told me not to do something. And they're shipping drones and giving targeting intelligence to the Russians. So is Iran. Poland is putting up tank barriers on its border with Russia. Romania is building a wall. Romania has troops on the Moldova border. There's 10 to 20k Ukrainian troops on the Moldova border. There's a big old ammo dump in Moldova. Ah, that must be what's going on. Both Medvedev, the former Russian president, and Putin both gave speeches in the last week. They cited Rule 19 of the Russian Federation. Rule 19, folks, is they can use nukes even if the other side is only using conventional if the existence of Russia is threatened. Zelensky came out a few days ago, and I don't want to take this out of context, but basically he said, if you don't keep shipping us money and you don't keep shipping us arms, your sons and daughters are going to be over here dying with our sons and daughters. Oh, really? Chinese incursions into Japanese and Taiwanese airspace and waters are getting more prevalent and more bold. They are embarked on a huge military buildup on all fronts, including nuclear. The United States has moved its older fleet ships into the Pacific, and its newer fleet ships it's keeping in the Atlantic. Because in the outbreak of a war, ships of the line that are older are more expendable than newer vessels. America is opening four new bases in the Philippines. Japan is rearming. In fact, they're buying 400 Tomahawk cruise missiles. Taiwan is upping the level of its drills and just passed a new law against war misinformation. Iran 
is now training the Iraqi military. Gee, I thought they used to be enemies. Oh, great job, Obama and Biden. And despite Blinken and Biden waving their fingers at Brazil, where, by the way, you saw an election fraud exactly along the lines of what I described to you here in the rest of the story. You now have a socialist ruler, Lulu. And though Biden and Blinken waved their fingers at him and said, no, 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 he said, oh, yes, 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 yes. And two Iranian warships are docked down there. And China is negotiating for a naval base in Central America. We can keep going down this rabbit hole, but why don't we just say that we live on a very unstable planet? Remember the story I brought you last week about Nigeria? Well, they've had their election. And guess what? Oh, it seems there's been problems with the voting machines over there. Hmm, imagine that. And they still don't have all the votes counted from the February 25th presidential election. Is this sounding familiar? And there was widespread violence at polls. Just so happens it's in districts where Obi, the challenger, was particularly strong. And turnout was tamped down. And in the mix is a globalist outfit tied to the WEF. Imagine that. Who would have thought? It's called the National Democratic Institute. And it's supposedly over there on a mission to observe the election and encourage voter participation. Oh, of course it is. And by the way, do you know who's with them at their invite? Stacey Abrams. That's right, Stacey Abrams. Okay. And did you know that the In Power Party, the Socialist Party, remember the OB Party is the more conservative party, but the In Power Socialist Party and the Premier, the President, Tinubu, they seem to have gotten cozy with Obama back there in 2012. In fact, he was invited by Obama to the Democratic National Convention in 2012. He gave him a, quote, gold card invitation, unquote. And of course, Obama campaigned for Stacey Abrams in 2018 and 2022. And there's a lot at stake in Nigeria, folks. The most populous country in Africa, large land area, and lots of oil and natural resources. What could possibly go wrong here? There couldn't be any election hanky-panky, could there? I'll let you know how that election comes out, but I think we know how it's going to be called, shall we say. Remember, it's not about the voters, it's about the ballots. And our buddies there at YouTube, also known as Google, did you know they're now taking down all the gun channels? Any of the channels that have to do with firearms, shooting, ammunition, you name it. Huh, why would they be doing that? And John Fetterman, the senator from Pennsylvania, elected under other dubious, shall we say, election irregularities. As you probably know, he's been in the hospital. Supposedly checked himself in, you know. Supposedly wasn't feeling well because of his stroke and such. Well, now there's rumors circulating that he's in pretty bad shape. I'm not going to get into the rumors because, look, sometimes the right side press is as bad as the left side press. Why don't we just say he's in the hospital, the doctor's safe for an extended period, you can't get any word in his condition, and it doesn't look all too good. But you know, the Democrats are scared to death of a special election, which is required in Pennsylvania, because they might not be so lucky on their shenanigans the second time around. So we currently have a United States senator incapable of speech, incapable of understanding speech without an electronic translator, in an unknown condition, whose doctors say he's going to be in the hospital for a long time. Hmm. How's he going to vote? I'm sure the Democrats will figure that out. You want to hear a little scary AI tale? Ford Motor, they're installing AI and autonomous driving intelligence in their new vehicles that will repossess your car or truck at their command if you don't pay your monthly car or truck payment. I, I am 
I wish I was making this up. I'm not. Supposedly, you get warnings because the system shuts down all your comfort features and then starts limiting the speeds you can go and other types of warnings all the time, either talking to you or flashing on the screen. Make your payment, make your payment. And if you don't make your payment, they flick a switch and the car, and there's nothing you can do about it, drives autonomously back to the dealership you bought it at if it's a newer car. And if it's an older car over a certain amount of miles, that's secret, I guess, it drives itself to the junkyard. I'm not making this up. As you probably know, although the mainstream press certainly doesn't dwell on this, and it's kind of scattered news, just in the last several weeks, you know, we had this train derailment in East Palestine, which is just horrible. And as a quick sidelight on that, did you know that they've stopped cleanup there? The EPA has issued an emergency order to stop cleanup because it seems that the places they were going to bring all the contaminated soil and other goodies in Texas and Pennsylvania have said, no, you aren't. And additionally, a plane flying out of Bill and Hillary Clinton Airport in Arkansas crashed. And on that plane were senior executives, cleanup specialists, and scientists headed to the crash site, or should I say headed to the derailment site, to assess and take charge of the cleanup operations. What are the odds of that? And there's now places as far north as Maine reporting rainbow-colored snow, and places in Pennsylvania and New York reporting kind of a strange ash. But I digress. In addition to that wreck, there's been a whole bunch of fires and explosions and nastiness happening over the last two weeks. In fact, over the last year, over a thousand rail mishaps and derailments, scores and scores of fires in the United States and around the world, all like critical infrastructure fires like food plants and attacks on utilities and explosions of manufacturing. Just in the last week, a Florida recycling plant caught on fire. A truck conglomerate, in fact it makes parts for big rigs, blew up. Several people were killed, unfortunately. There's a uranium fire at the Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is a military, top secret. This is like where our tests are done, where your uranium is stored for nuclear weapons. Last week, there were three fires on the same day. Same company, Pemex, the big Mexican oil firm. A refinery and a storage fire in Mexico, and a refinery fire at a Pemex facility in Texas. And then there's the metal foundry in Bedford, Ohio that blew up. I've told you many times I don't believe in coincidences. It's my opinion America is under attack from within. And I don't mean I don't mean white extremists or white supremacists or, you know, those crazy white guys, those crazy right-wing nuts. I'm talking about a concerted attack by foreign elements who have infiltrated this country, likely through the southern border. Next week, I'm going to bring you a much longer list of what's been going on for the last year, which mainstream media, in fact, really no media, has brought you. And you can determine for yourself whether... Our infrastructure is so decrepit, you know, like worse than Bolivia, that all this is just going on by happen chance. Everything's wearing out all at once, or something else is going on. By the way, speaking of foreign influences and foreign enemies, Granholm, the Secretary of Energy, who has come out with these regulations on gas stoves, which they said they would never do, and they said if they do do it, it just it's not going to have any impact. Well, those regulations, folks, outlaw 96% of the gas stoves currently being made. And you know what we found out here in the last week? Prior to doing that, which they said they'd never do, she met with a radical activist group that pushed the idea. And she met with the leader of the Rocky Mountain Institute, RMI, who are pushing a complete gas stove ban. The guy's name is Jules Kortenhorst. He's a well-known global climate activist who also founded the Energy Transitions Commission and chairs, hold on here, the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Net Zero Transition. Wow. What a coincidence. 
And listen to this, another coincidence, because, you know, it's all coincidence. RMI has also collaborated with Red China to study transitioning away from traditional fossil fuels. And the only office this group has outside the United States happens to be located in Beijing. It seems that, should we say, Chinese moles in the White House, like, you know, this guy, Korstenberg, whatever his name was, that uh, Granholm met with. Biden is now appointed a Chinese Communist Party-linked individual, Dominic NG, that's NG, to head up the United States delegation at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, which is also called APEC. NG was running the East-West Bank in California. He was born in Hong Kong, by the way, but is a U.S. citizen. Oh, that's great. And by the way, what's come out is that while he was the CEO of East-West Bank, he also joined an organization called the China Overseas Exchange Association, which is a known spy ring linked directly to the CCP and CCP espionage. And according to the Biden administration and NG, he left the China Overseas Exchange Association in 2014 because he had been participating. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, the Daily Caller did some research, and guess what they found? NG was actually the executive director of the China Overseas Exchange Association for four years, 2013 to 2017, and probably has not stepped down yet from that position, that covert position. And additionally, NG headed up the China Overseas Friendship Association, which is COFA, in the year 2019, the year before the pandemic. And COFA, by the way, is another front association for CCP spying and espionage in the United States. And once again, there's a million things more to cover, and we're out of time. Listen, watch those videos on what's going on with the cartels, their invasion of the United States, and their commandeering of our election process and our elected officials, folks. It's really important. On the right side, radio.com. And look in the mirror. Repeat with your family and repeat with conviction. I will muster. I will stand. I will not comply. I will never give in. I will never stop fighting. I will join with those in these United States and around the globe who love freedom as I do, and we will win. This is Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side Radio. Lots coming at you next week, too. Keep the wind at your back. Please remember, if you've missed any shows, just click on Show Archive and you'll find all of his shows. We look forward to seeing you here again next week for another episode of Reed Lance Rosenthal on the Right Side.